Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. I'm Panel Beater and I'm here with you. I'm very pleased to see across from me Dr. Sharma after a bit of an absence in neonatal. Welcome back. Good morning. Good to be back. You've been gallivanting, Dr. Sharma. A little bit, yeah. Uh, so it was you know, part holiday, part really. I had to see my, my family, my, my grandfather, whose health is declining and I hadn't seen for a while. So I got to see a bit of India, which I had not been back to for several years. And really? Been yeah. a while, huh? Yeah, it's been a while. Quite the uh, culture shock every time I go back. Yeah, you only have to be gone uh, five minutes and something changes, right? It's just changing so fast. It was incredible. It was incredible looking at what had changed and what hadn't. So, for example, the, the city I went to was like it's the 32nd biggest city in India. has a population of a million. Which one's this? Uh, Aurangabad, it's called. It's about 300 kilometres away from Mumbai. And the fascinating thing about this place is the intersection on which my grandparents live still just kind of broken down and roads are just eroded and it's terrible in every way. But they've got a H&M, but they have a H&M. <laughs> yeah. What other anomalies did you catch? Well, uh, it was just nice uh, having a chat to, to, to some to people, residents who live there. So uh, the mm. our auto rickshaw driver, the guy who's kind of yeah. driving us around from place to place. So his, uh, his son had a, a kidney stone that might need to be removed. And I asked what the cost of that would be. And he said, well, we'll go to the medical college and that'll be free. And he mm. mentioned how his uh, wife, who needed to have her kidney removed about, she said, uh, eight years ago, cost him... You know, Australian equivalent, maybe like a hundred hundred and fifty dollars, mm. um, which was you know, look, it's still he, he needed to maybe take a small loan out for that, but really not too much at all. So yeah. that was actually quite nice to see. Yeah. It's it's better than many parts of the world, many more quote unquote developed parts of the world. Uh, health access in parts of India. So you got in, you got to um, experience a little bit of the health system just as an observer in that, or was that just a tale? I did. Well, no, no, that was absolutely no. as, as an observer too. I mean, the main reason I went to see, was to see my grandfather who has yeah, dementia right. and so looking at his care and how he's popped in and out of hospital and mm. changing attitudes there. We're not hospitalizing everyone. We're not over-medicalizing. People are starting to see the value in just wow. you know, a quality of life. So it's, it's fantastic to see the conversation progressing there too. Yep. Um, without wanting to um, pigeonhole, I'm, I'm sure a lot of, um, like myself, I'm lucky enough to have been to India a bunch of times, so I'm aware of there's a lot of nuance uh, to to thinking about India as a single country or as a single culture. You know, it's so far from it. But um, one of the aspects of our aged care here is, you know, we do institutional, we do, the nuclear family now has meant that we are outsourcing mm-hmm. a lot of care. How would you characterise the current state of aged care um, uh, where where you were, were specifically? Well, yeah. So that's uh, that's an attitude that's rapidly evolving because this is one of the core values of Indian culture is like you referenced you know, the the value of a family, mm-hmm. uh, and yet modern life means that people are working more, longer, harder, uh, and yet so they they do want to preserve uh, having elder family members close by, but still retaining these kind of these modern Western values. I guess we have that work. It's a really tough juggling act. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a, a ramp up in uh, aged care services with full time carers, yeah. um, and uh, but 
people really want quality. They really want to know their elderlies are, are being kind of looked after well, which you know we, we know has been the cause of so much debate and consternation here. And I, I think they're going to go through everything we've been through here in terms of the evolution of aged care services, but you know, at a much more rapid pace. Neonatal, pointy end of the academic year for you. How are you holding up? Good. I'm actually on aged care uh, now, so this is quite a um, quite a poignant uh, little little st- little tale. But um, it's quite interesting with developing nations like India, where they don't have the aged care services because they never really needed them previously. But they are now going to be one of the like have the biggest burden of things like dementia. Uh, so they'll have a really interesting couple of years ahead of them. Because of the age, yeah. It's still, it's still a relatively young population compared to ageing populations like Japan and Western Europe, but they're Australia. About, they're about to hit that, uh, mm. that age bracket where uh, they'll have to um, create a lot of infrastructure that yep. they previously didn't have. Hey, guys, we've got a massive show. Should we should move along. We'll come up uh, uh, with a news item in a moment. But we're looking forward to speaking with a few guests um, who, in one way or another, are involved with the Australian Association of Adolescent Health. There's a conference coming up in November. Um, and we've got a few guests in to talk to us through about uh, what's going on in adolescent health at the moment. Um, looking forward to introducing them to you. But how about a little bit of news? You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Neonatal, something caught your eye. It did, it did. There was an article that was recently published um, about the efficacy of rice. That's rest, ice, compression, and elevation for things like musculoskeletal injuries. Um, such as a rolled ankle or pulled hamstring, um, with a lot of doctors and physiotherapists thinking that this actually slows down the body's own natural healing uh, mechanisms and delays recovery. Um, and I think that's like a really fascinating idea because it's taught to everyone. Everyone knows rice. It's first aid 101. That's right. Patients tell me. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a well-known thing. I first learned it in, in primary school or high school, I believe. So it's all related in one way or another to soft tissue um, injury, rolled ankles, hamstrings. Um, you see a lot of footballers, don't you? If you're observing mm. sport, you see um, ice packs going on on the yep. sidelines. And you know it makes sense. Uh, you you when you get an injury, yet it all gets hot, it gets swollen, um, and that's all the inflammation occurring, and it seems bad. But um, I think that we're actually acting against the body's own. Uh, healing process similar to how people think that we should bring down a fever in say a child who's been sick but sometimes the fever is actually there for a reason which well, i think this is kind of half the problem we're, we're often trying to make sense of things and you can kind of argue against it either way so the traditional theory has always been that yes when there's an injury body has this uh uh, response called inflammation so there's redness heat and pain and swelling but the thought is that the body overshoots does it come kind of too much because mm. inflammation does actually cause a lot of damage in the body uh you know in a lot of other diseases so we kind of map that on to, to, to rolled ankles and uh and so i, I think this uh, the whole rice acronym rest ice compression elevation goes back to 1978 a prominent uh u.s sports doctor merkin um uh, talked about this he's had this kind of textbook and and since 1978, it's just been the kind of go-to things. And yet trials have come out, I think, as early as like probably even before the 2000s. But certainly 2012, mm. there's a big systematic review showing, hey, maybe it's not particularly helpful. 
and uh, and we've now ended up in the position where this Dr. Merkin actually several years ago in a blog post said, look, I think I kind of got this wrong. I really don't think ice helps. It might even hinder the process a little bit. Uh, that was done years ago. And in fact, it's quite funny. Like I was still learning from medical textbooks back then, the acronym RICE, it was all in mm. there. While the guy who came up with it saying, uh, hey, maybe we should not do this. Mm. And I think it's that kind of um, ingrained wisdom. You know, everyone knows RICE. Everyone, it's a very easy acronym to... To, to apply in the first aid situation uh, and it's going to be so hard to get it out of the the medical vernacular. Last week, uh, listeners who were um, tuning in or caught us on the podcast on demand, they'll recall that we were speaking about how the general public should be alert to reading research. This is just yet another example where it puts us in a head spin where we um, think we're trying to stay in touch mm. with the latest science and um, we trust whatever is being told for us uh to us on that uh particular moment in time and then there's a change how do we know do you reckon that this change is a correction rather than just another um um lobby in fact well put it this way i think even now with these new headlines uh there's a fair bit of confusion i've looked at the research a bit more closely and it's one of those cases where it's it's not necessarily that we know for sure that putting ice on a swollen ankle does not help. It's just mm. that there's not enough evidence to say that it helps. Right. There might be certain uh, times where it helps. You know, there's not all two rolled ankles are the same. There's a difference mm. between a, a ligament that's overstretched versus one that's torn. Um, and so, I, this is I hate using this phrase. I'm here. I am going to do it again. Yeah, more research is needed, <laughs> uh, so to speak. But, but, but the get out of jail card. Yeah, it is. Well, but I'll tell you what, what's likely to persist, though. I'll I'll tell you what's likely to remain true even kind of twenty years from now. That uh, that the research is definitely showing us, which is that ice is unlikely to change kind of the long term outcome of your ankle. It's it's the research is showing it's effective as kind of pain relief. It might delay the recovery, but the recovery is more or less kind of going to be the same. And I'd say that's actually probably been quite a sturdy finding when it comes to ice and rolled ankles for the last twenty years. Um, so how do you kind of reconcile all these things? I mean, you, you really it it sucks, but you kind of have to look at the research and exactly what the pro- yeah. research says. Uh, um, so it, I guess an allied area, because you brought up the um, issue of infl- inflammation, um, and that's generally what people understand is the role of ibuprofen. Yes. Um, and so do we read anything into how we should use ibuprofen? Um, uh, is, there, is there a connection here uh, when we think about rice? So the thing is, I think uh, a lot of the research actually shows ibuprofen is a, a far better anti-inflammatory agent than ice. Uh, this does seem to be a role for, for ibuprofen uh, in, in, in rolled ankles, for sure. So it seems to be clearly the far more kind of effective agent. Um, but you know, yet again, one of the problems we've got with musculoskeletal injuries is that the symptoms get better. Mm. And so you, 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 the best and biggest research of the most funding is really not going to happen for rolled ankles, really. Yeah. That's part of the issue. So it's part of why I'm so <laughs> unclear about my answers here. Um, I'm obfuscating for a reason. It's to, to cover up for a lack of really hard <laughs> yeah. data. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
We're talking with um, four people associated with the Australian Association of Adolescent Health. We've got Melissa Kang on the phone, who's an Associate Professor at University of Technology Sydney, UTS in Sydney, and also President of the Australian Association of Adolescent Health. We've got uh, Rowan Borschman, who's a research psychologist and NHMRC Research Fellow uh, from the University of Melbourne. We've got Ange Grant, the National Manager from Red Kite, and Ella... I, can you Chuhun. help me with... Say that again for me, Ella. Chuhun. Chuhun. It's not how it reads. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> and Ella, you're a medical student at uh, University of Melbourne. At Deakin at University. At Deakin. Welcome to you all. Um, can I just first check, Melissa, can you hear me? I can, panel waiter. Thanks. Oh, wonderful <laughs> to have you with us. Um, I wonder if we could start with you, Melissa. So we... Uh, got in touch uh, with Ange earlier on in when the um, conference started coming on the radar. And as president of the um, uh, of the association, can you just set that up for us? What what is the association and what's going on there? Yeah, look, I'd love to. The Australian Association for Adolescent Health is a relatively young organisation. It did exist back in the 80s and 90s and then it fell dormant for quite a long time and it was rejuvenated in Sydney about uh, eight years ago and we're growing, you know, by the year and we're a membership organisation that really welcomes and encourages young people to join us. That's, that's people aged 12 to 25 and membership for them is free. But we also bring together health professionals and educators from all over the country. We welcome international members as well, of course, but our real mission is to promote the health and well-being of young Australians. Uh, and we do that through our membership, through our annual conferences and through lots and lots of advocacy plus the, the individual work that each of us do and, and bring together to showcase at the conference and at events like this, like chatting to you guys. It's Yeah, it's great to see the media attention to adolescent health. You know, it seems like we only get a lot of negative stuff in the media at the moment. So I imagine one of the things that the association's paying attention to is is obviously drawing attention to the important issues facing adolescents, but that it's not all just about youth suicide and issues of that nature. Yeah, look, I think uh, that's, that's absolutely right. And what's, what we've noticed in Australia particularly is that this age group, the adolescents and young adults, are really the only group in our whole population whose health hasn't really improved. And in some areas, like mental health and suicide, it's actually almost getting worse than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And there's lots and lots of reasons for that. But... What we hope to do as an association that's based on, on our membership is to really bring the, you know, bring everyone's attention to that. So we want, we, you know, we want to get the attention of the public, of young people, of, of parents, professionals, and certainly of people of influence like policymakers and government. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to do because young people themselves are a really diverse group, but we really want to highlight the fact that, um, you know, in some ways their health is not getting better, but in other ways they're incredibly resilient. And by involving young people in making decisions about healthcare, about policy, about research, um, and, and getting them involved in actually talking to the, the researchers and the health professionals that care about them, you know, that, that's how you move things forward. 
Greg, just before we move on to talk about some of those details, it occurs to me that it probably is really useful knowing how we define adolescent for the purposes yeah. of, of yeah. your work. Um, do I just default to teenager or is it a bit more nuanced yeah. than that? Uh, it's it's a vexed issue that goes round and round in circles. And in fact, there's a recent new debate about it calling adolescents uh, anyone aged up to about 25. Look, the World Health Organization defines adolescence as the second decade of life, so those aged 10 to 19. In Australia, we call young people those aged 12 to 24 or 25. So AAAH is really focusing on that Australian definition, so 12 to 24, 25, which includes obviously all of the teenage years, but also we're really interested in young adults as an emerging you know, population in their own right that have their own unique issues. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Rowan, just might bring you in here. Now, you're a, uh, a research psychologist, and so our listeners are pretty used to the psychs on the show coming in and, and talking a variety of things of um, psychological and mental health. Where do you fit in the picture? So I'm a, I'm a full-time researcher, and my area of interest is really mental health as a psychologist, obviously, um, particularly interested in self-harm and suicide, which are two areas that really are increasing in, in prevalence lately in both numbers and in terms of news coverage and, and uh, interest. Um, so what's the scope of adolescent mental health in, and what distinguishes it from thinking about adolescent mental health from you know, um, due, you know, child or adult or aged mental health? Well, the evidence that uh, all adult mental disorders um, have commenced, sorry, a large part of the um, adult mental disorders have commenced by uh, the teenage years is now overwhelming. So we know that about one in two mental disorders across the lifespan have started by the age of 14 and around three quarters have started by the age of 24, which, as Melissa mentioned, is kind of the upper age limit of adolescents or young people in Australia. So adolescence really is the time to intervene. Uh, in fact, childhood is probably the time to intervene, but adolescence is a really important time for mental health. Can I just... Um, the language to me, you know, and, and given where I come at from a lot of these things, hearing language like intervene, how much of adolescent mental health is about adolescents themselves identifying that they need something addressed and how much is it the adult's or carers around them and using your language intervening? It's definitely a little from column A and a little from column B. Um, we're starting to see uh, young people like Ella really uh, getting involved in their own healthcare a lot more, and that's something that the AAAH is advocating for. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we do know that rates of mental health presentations are rising in, in Australia, so they're rising at three times the rate of physical health presentations. So that's one way that people are reaching out for help, which is really good. So you mentioned that um, you've seen a change in adolescence um, suicide rates, self-harm rates in the past you know, 10, 20 years. What do you think uh, is driving this change? Well, it's a pretty easy bandwagon to jump on, but I think that social media has probably got a fair bit to do with that. Um, there's a lot of research showing that people spending more time on social media typically have poorer mental health, and that's because there's a really good opportunity for self-other comparison on social media. And, and as we all know, everybody is only putting their things on social media that they want the world mm. to see. So if you're scrolling through Instagram for two hours and you see that one of your friends is on a beach in Hawaii and one of your friends is being <laughs> taken out for this fantastic dinner by their perfect boyfriend and one of your friends has you know, just won the lottery or whatever, you're thinking, why isn't my life like that? There must be something wrong with me and that can contribute to poorer mental health. So has any research been done looking at the um, 
say, a relationship between time spent on social media and uh, health outcomes? There's been a lot of research done on that uh, with varying results, but typically one of the, the biggest studies showed that spending more than about two hours a day on social media, which is not difficult for adolescents, is associated with poor mental health outcomes. Sometimes they do that during class, I'll just uh, <laughs> let you know. Two hours on social media, then they have breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ella, maybe you've got some thoughts on that. How do you uh, hear about discussions around um, social media use in your own practice and that of your, your peer group? Um, well, obviously, as a young person, I see a lot of my peers on social media. I'm a bit of a social media numpty. I don't really... I have Facebook, but I don't really use social media. So I'm a bit clueless when it comes to that. But I do see a lot of it happening around me. And I do see my peers comparing themselves to what they see on the Instagram feed or whatever. And it it is something that I think has become more obvious as I've grown up because I've grown up in the age of where social media has become big and the people around me have started using it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for better or worse, I'm old enough to remember a time when there was no social media. And, and I think, you know, when I have conversations with students at, at uni about their use of social media, what have you, I've got this comparison um, to refer to that they simply don't. And so if I'm saying things like, you know, there are ways to manage life without having social media. You know, it just it, it inevitably draws a, a blank face. How do you draw a party without a Facebook event? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dr Sharma. Now, this mention of technology makes me wonder if it can be used in, in good ways too. Uh, now, uh, Dr Kang, obviously you've been, uh, you wrote the Dolly Doctor column for, for, for 20 odd years. Yep. And uh, I suppose for, for many young people, that was their only kind of access, only re- access to reliable information about their health. Uh, and yet now we live in a world where uh, I suppose the main pe- way most of us access information, let alone adolescents, is through technological means, through I guess, yeah. social media or the internet. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, if, if you think that's been a good thing, a bad thing, both, are there trends? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Look, I think, uh, thanks for that question. It's a really important point because print magazines like Dolly and where all of us, you know, myself included, uh, was around for a long time before I became um, the Dolly Doctor. So, you know, we all turned to print media like, like magazines for sort of, you know, health information that you couldn't ask your parents or your doctors about. And with the disappearance of that, it's because of the rise of the internet and then subsequently social media. It just made print print media obsolete, really, particularly for the young generation. Now, I think that, you know, I absolutely um, agree with Rowan and share these concerns about the impact of social media on, particularly in, in the young, you know, adolescent age group when it's completely natural and normal to be self-conscious and to make comparisons between yourself and your peers. I think we can probably all remember doing that and it can be a bit of an excruciating time but when when you didn't have, you know, 24-7 images and posts and and um, sharing of stuff that your, your peers are doing, you know, that's really amplified and intensified that degree of self-consciousness and self-comparison. So I think that's the negative side of it. But of course, social media is 
and the internet, you know, is an amazing technological invention, really, and innovation that can be used and has been used for really positive outcomes in all sorts of ways. And it's the way sometimes that really marginalised young people find connection and find um, help and support through social media. So I think the answer is, you know, it's here to stay. So we've got to work out how to how to turn um, the use of social media into, you know, really positive experiences and, and health outcomes for young people. And to do that, we need young people to help us. Um, last week on the show, guys, we um, did a segment on um, on use of social media in mental health and recognised it as a, um, I guess, a double-edged sword. You know, initially when social media became available to health practitioners, it was a great opportunity to start communicating with people you wouldn't otherwise get um, access to and they wouldn't otherwise have access to health professionals um, but then the flip side was that social media if you're if we're giving advice you know maybe lay low a little bit or use it you know a little bit more modestly then um, there's a there's mixed messages there a bit and I and I, Angela I was I'm thinking as somebody who's dealing with um, the coordination of a lot of uh, different organizations uh, with the association and your own work at Red Kite um, social media is a pretty important part of the communication right yeah definitely we um we can't kind of you know get the messages out there without it um, so we really do kind of draw on everyone in the association to um, use their networks to get to get our messages out, particularly around, you know, the promotion of our conference and, um, you know, the great work that we're doing. So definitely reliant. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Welcome back to uh, Radiotherapy on Triple R with myself, panel beater, uh, Dr Sharma and Neo Nadal. We've got on the line in Sydney, uh, Melissa Kang from UTS. Um, we have Rowan Borschman in the studio, a research psychologist, Angela Grant, the National Manager at Red Kite, um, and Ella Chahum. Did I get that right? Oh, Almost. <laughs> I'm notorious. I'm sorry. By the it's end right. of the hour, we'll get there. Yeah, just in time. I think it's the hardest five-letter um, surname in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only five letters and I'm still messing it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, welcome back to Radiotherapy. Uh, neonatal. Now, Rowan, um, I believe that you have a, um, an interest in the, the health of some marginalised groups of um, adolescents, such as those in youth justice. I'd love to um, get your view on just just their health outcomes. You know, how easy is it to, for them to see a doctor? How likely are they to receive treatment? Those kind of things. Sure. So kids who wind up in contact with the criminal justice system typically do so within, uh, within a life trajectory that's characterised by multiple disadvantage, abuse, trauma and neglect. Uh, and so it's not surprising that the, they often end up in, in contact with the law. Um, but typically we know that young people who end up in youth detention underutilise health services in the community prior to entering detention. So really detention uh, represents this kind of unfortunate opportunity really to, to have their health needs identified and then um, hopefully met. So are they, do they have good access to a doctor in a youth justice facility? In theory, they should have good access to a doctor in youth justice. So a lot of them do have better access than they do in the community. Um, and, but we know that their health profiles, by and large, are typically quite poor. 
So kids in uh, youth detention have got higher rates of almost every physical and mental disorder that's ever been studied, you know, um, substance use disorders, mental health problems, um, sexual and reproductive health problems, neurodevelopmental disorders, self-harm and suicide attempts, um, pretty much everything across the board, even things like asthma and oral health and things you might not immediately think of. And so is it the case, Ron, maybe a bit of a leading question <laughs> to start off with, that, but that perhaps the, the mismanagement or kind of suboptimal management of, say, mental health disorders is perhaps what's putting these, uh, these youth at risk of ending up you know, in, in, in these detention uh, uh, centres and systems? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that the, the social and structural drivers of poor health overlap to a large degree with the, the drivers that um, might see a child or an adolescent come into contact with the criminal justice system. So once, uh, you know, if someone's using drugs, for example, they're more likely to suffer poor health, but they're also more likely to come into contact with the police as a result of using drugs. So you'll find that the kids in detention have typically got poor health across the board. Now, maybe Dr Kang can um, have some input on this as well, but just broadly, what do you think that the medical profession and medical professionals could be doing to improve youth health and adolescent health? I think we're talking about, uh, you know, the, the people at the coalface, so the clinicians and the caseworkers working with young people, particularly those who are really vulnerable and don't have necessarily the kind of adult support that would be ideal for them. So those who are disengaged from family or who are from intergenerational, you know, disadvantage. And I work at, actually as a doctor with um, homeless and marginalised young people in in Sydney uh, one one day a week as well. So I see a lot of the kinds of kids that Rowan's talking about who have had contact with the justice system. So I think at the clinician level, at the service level, there's a lot that can be done that, that is being done but could certainly be improved around the country to make the whole workforce, whether you're a doctor, nurse, social worker, psychologist, um, perhaps a health promotion officer, we, we all need to, to have a certain basic level of training and skill in working with young people across the board because it, there are certain fairly easy to learn techniques about how to engage them to understand what their health issues are, how to ask questions and you know how to engage them in talking about the things that concern them. I think then there's a, the, the layer beneath that is what we need to do at a sort of societal structural level around services and how to bring different sectors together such as education for example so if you've got a young person who is you know struggling because their family has struggled for generations then it's it's you know it's teachers it's people that see them every day at school in perhaps late primary school early high school who can identify these things and and try to connect them with the right kinds of services for them so that kind of idea of coordinated and integrated approaches to health and, and well-being, I think, are really important as well. Now, we're seeing programs like this developing all around the country, but I think there needs to be a lot more investment by government and at policy level to really strengthen um, what we're doing for adolescents and, and young adults before they really start to disengage with school and then, and then they really do start to fall through the cracks. And what you know, what what some people refer to the adolescent decade is, you know, um, second decade, second chance. And and while there's a lot of evidence that investing money and policy in the early childhood years, we now know that by investing again in the second decade of life, we can really 
changed the trajectory of many, many young people's lives. So I think there's lots of different ways that we can um, intervene um, structurally, politically and at service level um, to, to improve the health and well-being of young people. And that's really what AAAH hopes to eventually do. You know, we have a really ambitious agenda. Mm. So you mentioned AAAH and um, their input into adolescent health. What are some mm. of the things that have come out in the past that AAAH have, um, have identified that's an issue with adolescent health? Yeah, look, historically, when it first formed in the 80s and 90s, it, w it was able to secure some federal government funding. So that really grew the network of people like ourselves who were very active in promoting adolescent health, often within their own state or territory. Um, they would come together, you know, for conferences, maybe not every year, and kind of share, you know, share what they were doing, involve young people in the discussion. And... Um, you know, that was able to influence, often at a state level, what, what was happening. So, for example, in New South Wales, you know, we've had a youth health policy for about 20 years now that's been really effective at training the workforce, at ensuring that state government-run services, that there's a, a basic level of training of the workforce. Victoria also has a really um, excellent, you know, lots and lots of... Um, youth health and adolescent health initiatives and programs as well, like the current Doctors in Schools one um, across Victoria, for example. So I think having peak bodies, which is a kind of multidisciplinary group of researchers, clinicians, advocates, people who work for NGOs, I think that's really important um, for influencing government, getting the attention of government. So I think that's what the, the new AAAH uh, intends to do as well. Yeah, th that was a fantastic answer, and uh, I just wanted to touch upon one of the things you mentioned there, the, the role for mm. NGOs, not-profits, uh, yeah. yeah, and just the immense influence that sector can have. Now, uh, Angela, um, you lead uh, uh, Red Kite, a charity that supports children and young people who have a cancer diagnosis, um, and we often sometimes forget that actually a lot of uh, young adults, adolescents, children actually have chronic health conditions. We don't, we think of... We think of a lot of you know, kind of acute mental health issues and drug and alcohol issues, but but traditionally kind of not this. So uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about perhaps the the role that not for profit sector can have in the care of children. Yeah, I think um, more so, more and more we're having to play a really active role. Um, I think the role of not for profits, you know, many many years ago was is very different. Now where the notion of kind of contacting a charity for support now is um it's there's there's a lot less difference between um you know the people who need support and who don't need support mm -hmm. you know we we a lot of us you know just looking financially a lot of us are living you know paycheck to paycheck and so the impact of a chronic health diagnosis um on a family <clears throat> excuse me just financially is is enormous so you don't need to you know, have a lot of need or or be, um, you know, in that lower socioeconomic bracket to actually need support from the NGOs anymore. So I think the role that we play is really um, important and it's increased. And I think one of the things that we really do need to concentrate on as um, NGOs is collaboration and working together. 
Um, it's very hard to raise a charity dollar these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the duplication of services, we just need to really address that. Um, we really need to work collaboratively with each other to ensure that the outcomes for the clients that we are supporting is what they what they need. So we need to keep it you know, client-focused um, and really be open to working together. Angela, just on that uh, notion of collaboration and um, the need to manage finite resources and you mentioned duplication and so on, are a lot of the organisations that you're alert to, are they national or are they much more localised in adolescent health? Uh, Well, the organisations that I've been involved with are all national organisations. But, you know, there's, there's... a lot of you know state based as well, and there's amazing work going on out there. Um, so whether it be state based or national, I just think that the uh, the need to collaborate, the need to support each other, to support our clients, is really really important. Sure, and that's where the conference comes in, I guess, is that building familiarity amongst each other's work. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Networking, um, sharing the research that's been going on, sharing the work that you know, day-to-day organisations are doing uh, is really, really important. I mean, um, some of the speakers that, that we've um, that we've got, we've got some amazing speakers, but um, around George, George Patton, who's Professor George Patton, who's coming along to talk about um, the Childhood Adolescent Transition Study. I mean, this is amazing work that not just from um, uh, as professionals and, you know, um, health professionals and, and academics, it's really interesting, but um, when I look at the work, and you can probably uh, talk to this a bit more, uh, as a parent of older children now, ad- adult children now, I wish I kind of knew this um, when I had mm-hmm. young children because it's it's fascinating from a from a parenting perspective. Yeah, absolutely, Ange. Um, so the the study that you mentioned is called the CAT study, so the Childhood to Adolescence Transition Study, um, being led by George Patton at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and we managed to get twelve hundred kids in grade three, um, and we did a really comprehensive uh, interview with them and then we've followed them up every year since then and they're now in year 10 so we've got eight waves of follow-up and it's the first study really globally to track this really crucial period of between childhood and adolescence across the pubertal um, transition so yeah I agree that there's some um, some fantastic stuff to be learned we've got some good evidence coming out and um, I'm a parent of two young kids so not quite at adolescence but um, yeah the the outputs that we're hoping to produce and we have produced really so far are educational for um, parents and also for young people themselves and health professionals and advocates alike. Could you say just a little bit more about that research? So what were what was being observed and what was the interaction between the researchers and the um, and uh, those involved? Was it simply observation and reporting or were there conversations and interviews? I mean obviously age appropriate in terms of collecting the data, yeah, you? yeah, absolutely. So we got the kids one on one, and we did um, comprehensive uh, mental health, physical health um, assessments, even looking at things like their body mass index uh-huh. and their weight and their height and everything. Um, we had the NAPLAN scores linked in, so their educational outcomes. Uh-huh. We we're asking them about their family composition, you know, whether they're from um, dual parent households or one parent households, social networks, um, social media use, all this sort of stuff. So we're starting to get this really, really rich data source of um, this eight year period between about the age of 8 and 16. So just um, kind of broad strokes, what are some of the things that have have come out of that study that really surprised you? Well, this one might not be 
so much as a surprise, but perhaps it's really good to have the evidence now. We showed that um, kids who are suffering from some kind of um, emotional problems in primary school, by the time they get to high school, they're about one year behind in terms of academic outcomes. And obviously that gap, sadly, will just continue to widen. So if we can intervene really early, even in the childhood, the um, primary school years, hopefully we'll be able to turn around some of that um, the disadvantage. Yeah, that's, um, that's incredible findings because it's... Mm kind of giving proof to the fact that early intervention does make um, a big impact in chronic disease and uh, and further childhood outcomes. Yeah, and mental health. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber... Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Welcome back to Radiotherapy for the last few minutes with myself, Panel Beta, Neo Natal, and Dr. Sharma. And we've got uh, four wonderful guests from the Australian Association of Adolescent Health uh, Melissa King, the president of the association, Rowan Borschman, Angela Grant, and Ella Chuhun. Um, Ella. Um, as the uh, as the young voice in the room, um, you're, it's it's obviously really important that people are not just talked about that they're talked with, and I'm guessing that's how you generated your interest and your involvement. Yeah, so I've been involved in the conference for the Australian Association for Adolescent Health for a few years now, and it's I think it's incredibly empowering as a young person to go to a conference about adolescent health and be actively involved in it and feel like as a young person our voices are heard by the academics who are doing all this work for our own health and that we can get involved and it goes back to the you know there's a lot of people throwing around the saying nothing about us without us but I think that um, at through the AAAH they actually work really hard to try to include the young people in the discussion which is really important. And what's your involvement at the moment? Um, so this year I'm actually helping in, um, organise the Youth Forum, mm-hmm. which is running at the same day as the first day of the conference, and it's for young people to get involved. We've got a couple of great workshops and they can go along and see the plenary speakers. Wonderful. Thanks, Ella. Angela, just a, cu- a couple of m- uh, moments left uh, for you to wrap us up on the events at the conference. Yeah, so as Ella said, um, it's really we really are about young people and our uh, opening keynote speaker is Kareem el and Kareem is the Australian Youth Representative to the United Nations, who is currently on an, um, the listening tour where he is talking to about 1,500 young people across the country, regional and remote um, young people, to really talk and find out what is important to them, what issues are important to them, um, and what we can do to enact change for those issues. So, yeah, it is all really about young people. Brilliant. And Melissa up in Sydney, any last uh, words of uh, and thoughts about adolescent health in Australia going forward? Sure. If you're a young person or a professional working or caring for young people, please jump on our website, au. join our association and come to our conference. Wonderful. And I've just been reminded there's a discount code for registrations, Angela. There certainly is for Triple R listeners. The discount code is Triple R, Triple A H. 2019 for $50 off full regos and day regos as well so we really hope to see you there Wonderful stuff, big big thanks to our um, our guests from the Australian Association of Adolescent Health we had Melissa Kang uh, Associate Professor and President of the Association on the line uh, from Sydney Rowan Borschman, uh, Research Psychologist and 
HMRC Early Career Research Fellow uh, from the University of Melbourne, um, Angela Grant uh, from the association Anne Red Kite, and Ella Chuhun, who's been very patient with my pronunciation <laughs> of her name. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.